Hello, this is Danielle Paulding Daveline at the MIT Press. We recently asked Leonardo Music Journal editor Nick Collins to comment on the 20th anniversary issue of the journal and its theme, Improvisation. Nick's answers to our questions follow. Enjoy and thanks for listening. How did you choose the theme of improvisation for LMJ20? I've been editing Leonardo Music Journal for, oh, I guess around 13, 14 years. One of my decisions when I took on the job was to have each issue organized around some form of loose rubric or theme rather than just collect uh, all the papers that might be submitted in the course of a year. And um, in picking these themes, I try to think of things that relate to as wide an area of interest as possible while remaining true to the basic purview of the Leonardo Music Journal, which is to address issues of art and technology. For me, the, the primary challenge has been balancing the overtly technical aspects of sound art and avant-garde and experimental music with issues that have broader implications having to do with cultural content or artistic value, this way or that. My tendency is to try to alternate issues that have an overtly technical focus with those that uh, push beyond the sort of cubbyhole of techie art. Improvisation always struck me as being an essential part of performing live with electronic systems and to a certain degree working with them in studio, especially the pre-computer systems where, as I mentioned in my introduction, so much of the early analog electronics was inherently unstable, so unstable that uh, you'd be a fool to think that you could you could do hyper-specific music using that. Now, of course, the computers have sort of changed the playing field, and a computer can be employed to make some of the least improvised, most tightly crafted uh, music that uh, probably humans have ever been able to do. So I thought that given the current revival of interest in things like circuit bending and hacking and and uh, very low-level electronic work, that um, maybe this was an appropriate time to sort of address these various implications of these sort of twin concepts of improvisation and uh, working with technology. You mentioned in your introduction that you were surprised by the number of submissions for this issue. Did your understanding of improvisation change as you read through the papers? Were there aspects of improvisation that you had not considered before? No. I'll have to say that I've always thought of improvisation as a very, very wide open term and an often misunderstood one. In all honesty, I can't say there was, there was anything hugely surprising in the content of any individual submission. I think more what surprised me was the sheer number of responses, the fact that many people were thinking about the question. I am loath to project from my own, uh, how shall we say, interests and, and areas of concern into uh, the world at large. I'm, I've accepted years ago that I was always going to be sort of on the lunatic fringe of uh, musical practice, and it was a very kind and optimistic gesture, perhaps, on Roger Molina's part to bring me in to edit the journal, given the obscurity of my areas of pursuit. But every now and then, in picking a topic for LMJ, I am surprised by the number of people who do seem to think 
along similar lines, or if not on similar lines, at least they um, are attracted to the rubric on a scale that I obviously hope for when I throw it out into the world, but have come to not rely on. Also in the introduction, you make a passing mention of John Cage, a pioneer of chance music. Could you list for our listeners the other major highlights in the history of improvisation before and after Mr. Cage? Wow, that's, uh, that's, that's quite a tall order. I should uh, clarify, perhaps, that Cage was notoriously antagonistic towards the idea of improvisation. Improvisation, as he understood it, was uh, antithetical to his worldview of music. Yet I would say that the composers who came of age after John Cage, those who were either directly radicalized by him, you know, say the generation of composers like uh, Steve Reich and Phil Glass and Alvin Lussier and Robert Ashley and Pauline Oliveros and Cornelius Cardew, to name a handful, I think these, these artists took a, took a long look at music outside the Western canon and, and noticed that there was a high degree of, of improvisation present in it. Some of them incorporated aspects of improvisation directly into their music. Some of them skirted around them and, and maintained a somewhat anti-improvisational attitude. Who are the titans of improvisation? You know something? I don't think I'm qualified to uh, list names for fear of omitting uh, significant practitioners. I'll just mention one thing here. That is that obviously there are uh, styles of music that are characterized by improvisation. Styles of music for which, in the words of my Mandarin learning son, improvisation has been placed in the first position. And these are well known so-called jazz music, uh, a lot of pop music, rock and roll. There is the uh, question of free improvisation, obviously, on a global level, and then there are many, many, many non-European-centric musical forms for which improvisation plays an essential part. Several articles in this issue relate to electronic music in particular. Perry Cook and Scott Smallwood's article on the Sola Project describes orchestras made up entirely of laptop computers. How do these kinds of computer-based meta-instruments facilitate improvisation? As I said before, I think we are at an interesting point in the, in the history of um, the interaction of electronic technology and musical improvisation. The inherent instability of artist-manufactured analog electronics is now offset by the sort of inherent determinism of software. And yet, on both sides of that dividing line, people are uh, working against the innate uh, tendencies or the innate weaknesses or the innate strengths of their respective mediums. And I think that what the composers and performers who started working with the early sort of pre-Apple microcomputers at the end of the 70s, mid to end of the 70s, discovered was that a computer represented a state change in um, music technology and that the computer could incorporate elements of instrument, of score, and of performer. And... uh, It was up to the instincts and skills of the programmer and the composer to create a balance between those elements. And I was very happy to find that that question of how you work with the balance of embedding elements of musical choice 
such as those made by an improviser, in a software program uh, was a topic that uh, entered into this current issue of Leonardo Music Journal. In her introduction to the CD she curated for this issue, Sounds Like Now, Improvisation and Technology, Tara Rogers mentions the vexed relation between recording and improvisation, citing the need to edit the CD's improvised pieces for length. In the increasingly digital environment we live in, is the only true improvisation achieved by live performance? No. I think that there are uh, many, many instances of improvising for recording. A beautiful book came out a couple of years ago on the uh, San Francisco Tape Music Center, and what struck me in this was how that California style of studio practice of the early 60s deviated from the European sort of splicing and editing-oriented approach to recording in that many of the artists working uh, in a studio at the San Francisco Tape Music Center at that time were performing live to tape. Very often the only edits they would make to the tape were topping and tailing it, as we say, that is cutting in at the beginning and cutting out at the end. Pauline Oliveros' beautiful piece, One of Four, is a classic example of how that approach works. So um, the question is that of when you have the limitations of, say, a collection of artists on a CD, and you might have an artist you wish to represent with, say, a maximum of five minutes of, of time shared with others, and all their work is extended in duration, 20 to 40 minutes, then you have a problem of adapting an entire improvised performance into an excerpted and shrunk down form. And I don't suppose that's really all that different from uh, excerpting a, a recording of a composed work for a CD. So I think it's just that there has been a certain school of thought in improvisation that there is something holy about being in the presence of the performer and experiencing a live performance, and that somehow no recording will ever convey the, say, spontaneity and viscerality of the live performance. That said, I think that there are a fair number of composers who would be willing to say the same thing about performances of their composed music. So I think it's a valid point, but it isn't exclusively one that resides in the domain of um, improvisation. This issue marks the 20th anniversary of LMJ. Looking back at all the journal has covered, what have been the highlights and what have you learned about the music community? What's next for LMJ? Yes, I, I remember writing for the first issue of LMJ. My son had just been born and I was really quite convinced that there was no way on earth I could concentrate long enough to write a sentence, much less an essay, and yet I somehow managed to pull it off. It's, it's amazing what hormones can do for one, I suppose. It's, it must have been the artist's survival instinct kicking in. Instead of pulling the uh, car that had collapsed off the jack, off the leg of my child, I uh, somehow managed to dangle him in one arm while I typed on my word processor with another. Survival. That said, what have I learned about the music community? Well, first of all, in the in the, in the uh, two decades that LMJ has been around, I think the term sound art has grown in uh, visibility, in audibility, perhaps. I think there are more and more artists out there creating sound work while coming from a background that is very often what we might call extra musical. That is, their, their background, their training is in 
other fields than traditional music practice. However, over the last two decades, the tools that are used to craft sound, especially in a computer, have become so commonplace that they're just as easy to use if you come from a visual arts background or, say, a writing background than if you come from one of uh, thorough and systematic music training. In fact, I think very often visual artists, because these days they tend to work in multiple media, are possibly more facile and more adept at working with contemporary digital tools than most composers are. I'm happy that through no sort of overt agenda on my part, I think the Music Journal has, over the last two decades, represented that growing sound art community quite well such that the, the, the term music in the journal's title is becoming possibly somewhat anachronistic. That's sort of a growth area for the journal, for the art scene in general, and I think it represents a, a significant um, issue for more traditional musicians and composers to, to think about as they go on. And I'm happy that the Leonardo Music Journal has played a role in disseminating information about that area. I've been quite happy with the catalyzation that took place around certain of the rubrics that I've come up with in the past and the sort of uh, archival impact of certain of the issues in particular. I think the issue on David Tudor, uh, his work, his influence, and those artists who, while not overtly influenced by uh, Tudor, bear some form of uh, stylistic or conceptual connection. Uh, that issue was quite satisfying and has uh, really been a major reference on uh, Tudor's work and uh, for a large number of academic and non-academic uh, readers, and also I think has served as a bit of a catalyst for this emerging hacking, bending, and, and live electronic performance scene that has unfolded uh, or sort of been reborn in the last decade. I was also very, very happy with the English music, the not necessarily English music issue, because I have a deep affection for the quirky British avant-garde of the 60s and 70s, and uh, was quite pleased to be able to gather together as many authors as I did to write about this relatively overlooked scene. And we were incredibly fortunate to get David Toop to curate the CD for that issue. He was like a gambler who pulled in all his debts. No, wrong reference. He was like a bookie who pulled in on his debts. I mean, he, he came up with the most amazing, obscure recordings that I can imagine. And uh, the CD for that, the double CD, is really quite a triumph. And um, there's issues that, that are sort of personally meaningful to me because of my own interests as a composer. The one about sort of phonography and sound art was sort of a threshold issue in terms of defining that area. I thought the... Um, issue on gizmos, on the sort of revived interest in physical objects as opposed to pure software, was a useful issue. On the side of disappointments, I would say that I'm always struggling for a better gender balance in the journal, and try as I might, it's, it's never at the point I'd, I'd like. I also think there are certain parts of the globe that are underrepresented in it, and as wide a net and as wide a purview as I try to cast when I come up with the themes... It seems as though the concentration of writing always comes from the industrialized West. Europe, North America, uh, certain countries in Latin America, occasional East Asian. But 
there is a lot of the so-called third world that remains woefully underrepresented in the music journal, and I wish that were not the case. Uh, when I did the Southern Cones issue early on in my tenure about music and technology in South America and Africa, uh, there were very, very few submissions from Africa. The vast majority came from the more Euro-looking countries of South America. But aside from that, I've been extremely happy with what we've managed to do with the Music Journal. I'm very happy that we have a lot of non-academic writers contributing to it. I'm extremely grateful that the authors who have nothing to gain from writing for the journal in terms of, say, advancement within an academic structure are willing to take the time to write and deal with the, the critiques that come back from the peer review and work towards making a high-quality journal. I, you know, I think of myself as having been fortunate to have 13 little books by um, wonderful artists underwritten by someone other than my own wallet. And uh, when I look at them on the shelf, I'm quite pleased. And I think that although our readership may be modest, one of the wonderful things about a printed page is that until you get the fire, it does have a tendency to hang out for a while and wait for people to read. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information on Leonardo Music Journal or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.